you, everybody. Um, I just want to give a brief update. Uh, first, thank you for everybody who prays for me, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I'll share with you, I've had an army of faithful guys that have carried me to uh, chemotherapy on a regular basis and giving up their days, so I can tell you if you ever have to go through a trial like cancer that um, you have a church that will be by your side and be comforted by that. Um, I'd ask uh, you to pray for me this morning. Um, chemotherapy can do some crazy things to your head. It convinces you that compression socks and wearing shorts are a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so if you feel led, um, please do pray for me during the service. I'd, uh, I'd appreciate it. Uh, Pastor John will be back next week. He's down in L.A. Um, at uh, classes, and he's having a, a great time uh, just relishing the teaching. Uh, this week, I guess, he's um, under Sinclair Ferguson. If you know him, he's a, a great um, Presbyterian theologian. Don't let that scare you necessarily, but um, a great Scotsman. Um, and uh, so if nothing else, he'll, he'll enjoy that accent. Well, uh, experience does guide us oftentimes in uh, where the Lord leads us and, and certainly topics of preaching. Um, this morning I'm going to be uh, speaking from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And I've entitled the message, Entrusting Your Soul to a Faithful Creator. And if you were to glance at the text, you would realize it's, it's a, a, a phrase, a line, from the last verse in this section. Let me begin with this. Jesus, on the very night of his betrayal, made it his special point to connect the hour of suffering with the coming of his glory. The climactic hour of the one provided him with the glory of the other. On the night of his betrayal, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come glorify your son, John 17, 1. And Jesus knew that the eternal glory of the Christ could be established only by suffering on the cross. Jesus was not surprised by this. He did not think it strange. So when the hour came for him to embrace it as his own, he was not ashamed. This scene from the Gospel of John is a perfect picture of what Peter is expressing in our passage today. But suffering is very personal, isn't it? It is something happening to us, and we want to understand it and even control it. But what we will learn in this text is that our suffering has a much broader context than our own experience and a much greater purpose than we would ever assume. Think of how much our lives and how most in the world, think about and react to trial and suffering. If I'm experiencing it, something has gone wrong or someone is behaving badly. This is a big generalization, but isn't much of our lives consumed with the planning and preparation so as to avoid trial and difficulty? There's nothing wrong with that and is essentially prudent 
but it also perpetuates an illusion that we have ultimate control. Suffering is largely random, a pragmatic overcoming of it, the greatest good, and that our vision of an ideal life is one free of difficulty and suffering. That's really the predominant view in our world. If I just eat the right things, exercise the right amount, plan the perfect career, pick the best retirement path, live in the right state, and make friends with the right people, I can experience the perfect life, relatively free of difficulty. For the world, this makes perfect sense, and frankly, for most of us Christians, it does as well. Which is why Peter's letter is essentially a response to Christians' dismay over the difficulty they were experiencing as believers and an encouragement how to endure through trials. In Peter's opening greeting of this letter, he begins chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Just for a moment, I want to focus in on the phrase, exiles of the dispersion. We'll take a quick peek at the book of Acts. If you want to turn to chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to. But we're told in chapter 6 that in these days, the disciples were growing. In fact, since Pentecost, the church had been exploding and thriving. Acts goes on to tell us about Stephen. In 6.8, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, this didn't go too well with the locals. Stephen is eventually stoned for his testimony And then it says in Acts 8.1, and Saul approved of his education, of his execution, pardon me. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here the new believers flushed with enthusiasm for their new faith, empowered by the glory of and power of the resurrection are suddenly fleeing for their lives into the surrounding territories. So how do these two realities mesh? How do we make sense of being children of the Most High God and suffering? Peter is going to help us. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Let's read our passage this morning. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory 
is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely or with difficulty saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, interestingly enough, Peter begins this letter with what I'll call the three do nots. He says, do not be surprised. Do not be This is chemotherapy. Do not think it's strange. And do not be embarrassed. Let's look at the first one. Do not be surprised from verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. It suggests it's something that cannot be anticipated, yet he tells us, do not be surprised by it. In other words, there is something coming that you cannot foresee, but don't be surprised by it. More simply, don't be surprised by what is about to surprise you. Why not be surprised? Because what is about to come upon you is not an accident. It's not random. It's not bad luck or anything else that would suggest a blind, unfortunate series of events it is instead a powerful, orchestrated, fiery trial that comes from the hand of our sovereign creator God who has designed a specific test just for you. It is a trial to test you. Peter says early in his letter, chapter 1, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised. It is a trial to test you. Secondly, Peter says, do not think it's strange. Do not think this fiery trial strange when it comes upon you to test you. So not only are we not to be surprised by the fiery trial, we are not to think it's strange. The clear implication is that when fiery trials come upon the believer, it should not be thought abnormal. We have a different normal. We respond to trials as though something strange is happening because our instinctual response is to think it is abnormal. But suffering for the gospel, our faith, or identity with Christ is never to be thought of as something strange. Jesus suffered, so we should expect to suffer. John 15, 18, 
says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And beyond the suffering that comes from the world, we should not be surprised because God allows other suffering and even orchestrates it. Thinking it's strange assumes that what is normal is what we live, is that we live free of fiery trials, bad or difficult events. And what is normal is that we control our lives in such a way that we avoid bad things. We shield ourselves from difficulty. And the idea that our creator would direct and orchestrate trial and suffering, inconceivable. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7 is sobering. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We must, in humility, acknowledge God and his sovereignty over the affairs of men and, of course, over our individual lives. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Well, our third do not is do not be ashamed. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. This third in our list might seem a bit odd. Why would we be ashamed or experience shame when suffering? Well, let me propose a few reasons. First, we may feel shame over our own weaknesses. Circumstances of trial and suffering highlight our inability to control our circumstances and our weaknesses to overcome our trials and suffering. Our shame reveals just how much of our trusting in God is really built on our trust in ourselves, our own capacities, our ability to control, to control the situation. Second, we may be ashamed because we feel we deserve to suffer. An underlying belief that if I'm suffering, I must deserve it or God wouldn't allow me to suffer can produce guilt and shame and embarrassment. We certainly do sin every day, amen? And would rightly suffer shame and condemnation for it, except for Christ. Peter tells us he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When we sin, we do not take shame upon ourselves, we take it to the cross where Christ paid for all of it. Thirdly, we may be ashamed by enemies of the cross. At times, the world will use our suffering to mock and shame us in the gospel. Jesus knew this well. Matthew 27, 42. Hearing from the crowd, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Romans 1.16, 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Fourth reason we may feel ashamed. And hear me out. We may feel ashamed of God. This may be startling, but if we cannot accept that God allows pain and suffering for his purposes, his glory, and our good, we are left with a number of very problematic conclusions. One of those conclusions might be God is powerless over pain and suffering. Most of us would never outwardly express this doubt, but our hearts and actions can betray us. Who wouldn't be embarrassed for a faith in God powerless over our suffering? Maybe you're thinking God doesn't care or is unaware of your pain and suffering. If you are carrying an underlying belief that God is either disinterested or unaware of your circumstances and suffering, might very well leave you feeling ashamed of that God. Fifth, we are ashamed because God is angry and therefore chooses to inflict pain and suffering. Now this is perhaps most unlikely for the believer who understands the gospel and God's grace. But for those that are hostile to the gospel, it is proof that God perhaps doesn't even exist. Or if he does exist, he's evil. If you hold to this belief, you will either cringe in shame for your God or you will lose your grasp on your understanding of God's love for you. Hear and know, believer, God's wrath has been quenched by the blood of Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Well, we know not how not to respond, don't we? But it still begs the question for, what's the reason for suffering? And, and Peter gives us a clue in the very first word of our text. He says, Beloved, we suffer because of God's love for us. Peter says, beloved to this group of dismayed believers, it is a loving, compassionate, pastoral greeting intended to communicate empathy and understanding of the reader's circumstances. Perhaps even it is an anticipated response to the struggling heart that says, does God really love me? Beloved, God cares for you is Peter's response. Beloved, we must view all trials through the filter of God's unchanging, unfailing, unending love. 
James 1.17 says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, all of it, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God never changes. His love never wavers. With Peter's opening greeting of beloved, you can hear his fatherly counsel. Beloved, do not be surprised. You are loved and cherished. But don't be surprised at the fiery trial. The incongruity for us is combining beloved or loved with a fiery trial. Shouldn't being loved by God, the sovereign ruler of all creation, shield us from fiery trials? This is why our understanding the reasons for suffering is so important. Secondly, we suffer for our testing. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Peter tells us there is a purpose and a meaning to our trial and much on the other side of suffering. It is for our fellowship with Christ, verses 13 to 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This word insofar, or as far as, it's a qualifying word. it qualifies this response of rejoicing. Insofar says your rejoicing is dependent upon sharing in Christ's sufferings. Think of the great heroes of the faith who have gone before us. If we would ask them what marks them with glory and hearts of rejoicing, what would they say? What would, would they not point to the trial of their darkest suffering? Would it not be their point of identification, their communion with their God and his glory. Think of Noah in years of mocking as he labored. Abraham as he set out to sacrifice Isaac in Moriah in the long agonizing walk up the hill. Moses having been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God while considering the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, and Joseph, enduring the dungeon while falsely accused. All and more can be pointed to as those who willingly suffered, but in the end rejoiced in the glory of God. Perhaps we should ask, how do we share in Christ's suffering? If Christ's suffering is connected to our rejoicing, what does that look like? First, we must keep our experience in perspective. And the writer of Hebrews helps us. In chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And the truth is, in America, at the moment, we are extremely blessed compared to other parts 
of the world. Um, there's many sites on the persecuted church on the web, and it's worth looking at. But the, the persecution that is taking place worldwide, and it is greatest among Christians by far, is daunting. But in America, we uh, have not experienced that as yet. But reading further, it is clear that what Peter is talking about is the suffering flowing from Christ, or when we identify with Christ. And maybe we should ask, what does it look like when we are unwilling to suffer for Christ? And ironically, we'll look to Peter. In an event some 30 years prior, if you'd like, turn over to Matthew 26, verses 69. Twenty-six sixty-nine, and it begins. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, "You also were with Jesus the Galilean." But he denied it before them all, saying, "I do not know what you mean." And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an, oath, with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them. For your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The harsh reality is that Peter refused to be identified with Jesus at his darkest moment. He would not share in his suffering. Mercifully, Peter is later completely restored by the Lord, but Peter draws no rejoicing or glory from this event, only bitter weeping. But before we're too hard on Peter, are we prepared to suffer? Betrayal, desertion, rejection, mocking, derision, false accusations, being spit on, beat up, arrested, even killed for the name of Jesus? When we identify or suffer with Jesus in this life and through our trials, we can rejoice now and in anticipation of his return. Of all the disciples, Peter understands this perhaps better than anyone. Consider his sorrow when he spoke with Jesus following the crucifixion. John 21, 17. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In Peter 4.13, when the apostle says, 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is almost literally reiterating Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is worth noting that when our identification with Christ is so clear, so proclaimed, so pronounced, we will suffer for the name of Christ. Excuse me. Well, why else do we suffer? We suffer for sanctification's sake. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Suffering and trials separate us from our love of sin and the world. We suffer for our salvation. Verses 17 to 18 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved or saved through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what Peter is saying is that judgment is part of God's saving work. And, and that through it, that through great difficulty, we are saved. Luke puts it this way in his description of the stoning of Paul. Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, apparently it was just another day, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul shows the path of salvation is the path of faith. It is the path of the cross. And again, in Philippians, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Next, we suffer for judgment. Verses 17 to 18 again says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Fortunately for the believer, judgment is not condemnation. 
but it is to purify and to cleanse. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We suffer for our joy, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Do you want a heart filled with rejoicing and gladness? Embrace Christ's sufferings. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We suffer because it is God's will. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The truth is, we may never know the full meaning and importance of our suffering. I can tell you, uh, and I think it's probably a, a very natural response after my diagnosis for months, um, I sought for some epiphany. You know, why now? It, you know, in my natural way of thinking, it, it just seems so illogical at this point in my life that, that uh, this would happen. And, and uh, I dare say that for the most part, we will never know the full reason why we suffer oftentimes. But we will in the end say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, we started off talking about um, a series of do not responses, or you could also say quite natural responses to suffering. Peter also gives us a look at supernatural responses to suffering. He says, rejoice. And, and, and to the world, this is very strange. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you, also may re that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So rather than or instead of surprise and strange amazement to our trials and suffering, Peter is telling us to rejoice. Rejoice is to, and you can't underplay this, it is to exult, to rejoice exceedingly or to be exceedingly glad. This is over-the-top exuberant celebration. Rejoice 
is the response, Peter says, we should have to suffering. But why rejoice? Why is the appropriate response to the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you to rejoice? If you remember early on, after Pentecost, Peter was arrested for preaching Christ. And then it says in Acts 5, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the apostles' boldness led to persecution and suffering, which led to rejoicing. Now that is a whole lot of weird in most people's book. But Peter says their rejoicing was because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing for being identified with Christ. Well, the second supernatural response is to reveal God's glory. Verse 13 and 14 and also in 16, it says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we share in Christ's sufferings, we honor him and we glorify him. Third supernatural response is to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Therefore, Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you want to express the deepest level of trust, faith, and love for Christ? Then entrust your soul to him. To understand and trust, think of being in a bank and handing over a safety deposit box. And in that safety deposit box is full of your most cherished and priceless valuables. You're entrusting him with what can never be replaced. And here's the kicker. Everything in that box, he created it all. And he gave it to you. He promises with an unbreakable promise to guard and protect it. All that you have, all that you are, in this life and the next, you can entrust to Jesus. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offering, heirs according to the promise. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And I ask you, 
Have you entrusted your soul to God? You can trust him. He made you and he sustains you through every trial. If you're his, he is your faithful creator. And I pray you entrust your soul to him today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being our faithful creator. Father, thank you for in your wisdom. You know how to deal with us as beloved children. You care for us. You desire so much for us. Father, you promise that you will continue the work that you have begun in us to the end and you will faithfully deliver us to yourself. Father, help us that as you work, you would help us to entrust our souls daily to your care, to your purposes, and to all that you allow into our lives, Father God. I pray for anyone here who has not entrusted their soul to Christ. I pray they would today. I pray they would know you as their loving, heavenly Father and Savior. Who cleanses away all sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.